If you've ever been at home and wondered, Josh and Chuck, is it really worth going to see them perform live? The answer is a resounding yes. Yes. And if you live in Vancouver, BC or anywhere near there, come on out to the Chance Center on Sunday, March 29th to see us and find out for yourself. And then the next night, if you live around Portland, Oregon, you can go to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall and we'll be there ready to go on Monday, March 30th. That's right. You can get all ticket information at sysklive.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and there's guest producer Dylan sitting in this fine Wednesday morning of weirdness. <laughs> Everything's out of whack and strange. I know, right? Hopefully our voices sound normal, Chuck. I was worried about that. So, not that anyone cares, Yeah. but our regular Tuesday sesh uh-huh. got pushed because uh, our computer took a dump. Technical difficulties. And then we said, hey, let's just do it tomorrow morning. <clears throat> Had a few more technical difficulties, but here we are. Going strong, buddy. <laughs> I'm tired. Are you? No, I'm okay. I've had enough coffee that I'm not tired. It's weird for us to record in the morning. It just, everything's out of whack. I would call it eerie, I think. Because, you know, I do the uh, movie crush, mini crushes on mm-hmm. Wednesday mornings usually. Mm-hmm. So usually I'm just making dumb jokes and cussing a lot with Noel right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, I got to switch my brain back into G-rated mode. Yep. To talk about Rupert Sheldrake. <laughs> That's what we're doing. And uh, you, you can curse if you want. We'll beep it out. Sheldrake? Depending on, <laughs> yeah, I think that's how the scientific community <laughs> refers to him. That's just one of those names that seems like it should be yelled at like that. And, and I like to call him Rupert after uh, I Michael, said that. Michael Kane in um, <laughs> Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, right. <laughs> Remember he called Steve Martin's name at one point was Rupert? Uh-huh. There's a cork on the fork. <laughs> yeah. Man, that was a good movie. It was. So um, we're talking about a different Rupert or Rupert, a Rupert. Guy named Rupert, Rupert Sheldrake, who is widely considered in the scientific community um, a heretic, a fraud, sure. yeah. a hoaxer, a pseudoscientist, all sorts of things. And normally we don't entertain um, that kind of stuff or specifically people who are considered as such because we tend to be like, yeah, pseudoscience is not so great. But there's something about Rupert Sheldrake. There is. That um, the cut of his jib, maybe a little bit something like that. But he he is different in some ways. He kind of stands alone. He's got staying power to say the least. He was first branded a scientific heretic in 1981, mm-hmm. and he's still around doing his thing, ticking off the scientific establishment. Yeah, um, but see, he's also in certain circles labeled as a, an open-minded scientist, right? And someone not afraid to kind of question the the unquestionable and someone who flies in the face of what some people uh, call the scientific orthodoxy. Or dogma. Where everything is so rigid that there is no room for new ideas to be right. explored. Right, that, that basically <clears throat> the scientific orthodoxy that you refer to, it kind of says we are on basically the right track. Mm-hmm. We generally have the the parameters kind of figured out. We know the the math we need to be using. We know the places we need to be looking. We have generally in everything from physics to biology an understanding of the general structure. Now it's just a matter of filling in the details. Yeah, we've so, looked under the hood. Uh huh. And we know what's going on generally. We know that it's a combustion engine and not an electric car that the universe is. That kind of thing. The but, heretical but so, electric car. Right. So when somebody comes along and says, no, no, that's not even a car that you're looking at. That's a boat. Um, <laughs> the, the scientific establishment, or really any establishment, really tends to get shook by that kind of stuff. They don't like that. And one of the reasons I was trying to figure out, like, why people get so invested in this. I think there's a lot of people who come and say, I am a person of science. Mm-hmm. I believe in this. I subscribe to it. And they end up going so far as to pin their identity to it. And this happens with just about any any structure. Yeah. And when you pin your identity to something, when that, when that something, that structure is attacked, you take it as a personal attack. And I think that that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are so rabidly against mm-hmm. Rupert Sheldrake. 
So should we talk about this guy? I think we should. I think, Chuck, we should explain one of the reasons why he has such staying power and what makes him different is that he is about as trained a scientist as a scientist can be. Yeah, and, you know, as we move through this, you'll see that the what makes him stand out from kind of other uh, kooks is that he's very, very intelligent guy. He's right. He's not a kook. No. So that's why it's kind of like, that's why certain people listen to him. One of the other things I really want to point out at the start of this, and this is what really differentiates him from a lot of people on the fringes today, is he's not an a-hole. He's True. very polite. He's yeah. very calm. He's very measured. He doesn't engage in ad hominem attacks against his critics. He engages yeah. with his critics. He is uh, He's actually a very congenial person. Yeah. He's just on a different side of the coin from the scientific establishment in in almost every respect. Yeah, and when I've read articles and interviews with uh, other people from the establishment that have hung out with him and done experiments, they're all like, he's a really affable, kind of fun guy. Exactly. Even though when you look at him and when you hear Rupert Sheldrake, (laughs) it doesn't scream fun and affable. No. But he is. yeah, he's got a lampshade on his head nine-tenths of the time. <laughs> oh, man, can you imagine the party, <laughs> the lab parties? <laughs> Beer bong! They get freaky. All right, so he started out his career um, kind of right down the middle science-wise. Science mm-hmm. uh, went to Cambridge uh, as an undergrad. He won a botany prize uh, there, the University Botany Prize. He then went to Harvard, studied philosophy. He studied mm-hmm. the history of science. That was a big one. Went back to Cambridge. Yeah, apparently he's just like a savant when it comes to science history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Went back to Cambridge, got his Ph.D. in biochemistry, and then a postdoc with the Royal Society uh, in plant development and the aging of cells. So I think that's unassailable, unimpeachable. It really is. And had he just kind of continued along, this is largely in the the 70s, had he just kind of continued along this path, um, he probably would have been a, a really widely respected, although pretty obscure, plant scientist or biologist of some sort, Just right? one of many. But one of the things that happened to him was he went to India and studied at, and, and lived at an ashram for uh, a, about a year and a half and apparently smoked a lot of hashish while he was there. <laughs> now, is that true or are you just goofing? The hashish part? Yeah. Oh, I'm just goofing. But but surely he did, right? <laughs> surely. <laughs> but the thing is, is around this time, um, he elaborated on a, a, an idea that he'd had that he learned about probably in his um, history of science um, classes that science can't explain how you can take some cells that start out as like a seed or something like that, and that little seed grows into an oak tree. Mm-hmm. And that that oak tree looks startlingly similar to other oak trees that, you know, you can dig up from a thousand years ago or imagine that they'll basically look like a thousand years from now or that are spread out on different continents. They can't, science can't explain how um, morphology works, that, that how something becomes the thing that it is and that that resembles something else. And you say, well, it's genetics. Like, that's kind of the common thing. But here we get to that point where science is like, we're, we've got the broad strokes. We just don't understand the details. And, and genetics can possibly be the thing that explains this later on. But we really have no idea how this stuff works because it's really, really intricate how something like that happens. Yeah, it's almost like Shell Drake was like uh, uh, Tom Hanks and Big in the in the boardroom when they're d- talking about the toys, and he's just like, I don't get it. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Like, because they'll say, oh, well, it's DNA. And he's like, yeah, but I don't get it. Like, how does a tulip become the tulip? Right. Well, it's DNA. Yeah, but that really doesn't explain it all. Well, it's DNA. We understand DNA. He's like, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, and to him specifically, DNA is a, a chemical that that um, dictates how other chemicals are produced, right? He He's thinks like, it's very overrated. He does, um, which uh, that in and of itself is heretical. But <laughs> it's pretty funny too. B- but it is. But with with this with morphology, with the th- how something takes the shape that it has eventually in its uh, a mature state, there's a lot going on there. There's like little cells that have to set up and arrange in a certain pattern mm-hmm. that later on down the road, after all these processes play out, will form another pattern. So there's basically planning 
there's um, timing, like all of those, that process has to happen at just the right steps and just mm-hmm. the right stages for that end result to be what it's supposed to be. There's differentiation of cells where one cell can produce a new cell and the new cell has totally different genes turned off or on that will allow it to specialize. And these are the things we don't understand what's guiding it. And so Rupert Sheldrake kind of tapped into a thought that started, I think, back in the 1920s among biologists that there must be some unseen guide or force that is that basically says, I've got this. I know what the end result is. I can take the starting bit and guide it into this end result. And we don't understand what that is. Yeah, there were a couple of uh, scientists in the 20s and 30s studying what they called uh, morphogenetic fields, Mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of like the idea that there is this invisible mold that we don't fully understand that gives the shape to these things. Uh, A guy named C.H. Waddington in 1936 had a paper called Morphogenesis and the Field Concept. Mm -hmm. And then a Russian biologist named Alexander Gurvitz kind of had the same thoughts, but, you know, I think he came independently to these thoughts. Yeah. Which was, hey, there's something else going on here. We're calling it morphogenetic fields. Uh, and this is this, like I said, this idea that there are these invisible molds that we don't fully get that gives things their eventual shape. And that's why they all look alike. Right. So so on that ashram in the late 70s, early 80s, Sheldrake was kind of vibing on this idea of there must be some some uh, some field these morphic fields or whatever that guide the development of something living into its mature form because we just don't understand it so hey maybe that's just as good an explanation as our current understanding which is really non-existent so um he took it further though and he wrote oh, yeah. a book <laughs> yeah, he did. He took it further. He wrote a book called A New Science of Life. It was his first book, um, as far as I know, at the very least, it was his first book that really kind of made a splash. And in it, um, he, he kind of said these these morphogenetic fields, we're going to call them morphic fields now. And not only do they, sh- they guide the, the morphogenesis of a living thing, they guide its behavior from from that moment on, from the moment of conception on to, uh, I guess it's death. And then when that thing dies, the life that it's led will contribute to this morphic resonance that carries on to the next generation and the generation beyond that. And so you eventually have this long line of tulips that know not only how to grow into the right shape, but how to behave and do all the things that tulips do because of all of the living tulips that came before it through this process of morphic resonance. Yeah, and and, and not just like uh, that tulip growing nearby at the same time, but he said, what if it just was across all of space and time mm-hmm. and the tulip in Africa in the 19th century is has informed the tulip in Florida in the year 2020 how to grow? Right. And everyone went, oh, Good hashish over there in India <laughs> in the 1970s, right? Sure. Sheldrake. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to how it was received in a minute. But let's. you want to take a break and then come back and kind of explain how, how, it, how he says it works a little more? Yeah, but I also think I totally spoiled how it was received, but that's okay. <laughs> it's all right, man. All right. Okay, so we're at the point where um, Rupert Sheldrake has published his 1981 book, A New Science of Life. And in it, he's talking about this morphic resonance that basically says um, anything that self-organizes from a molecule to a giraffe um, knows how to take the shape or is guided by a process that shapes it called morphic fields. But even more than that, it's behavior. It's future behavior is shaped by these same morphic fields. All of the all of the things that the, the giraffes that came before it learned and knew and saw and ate 
and figured out becomes this kind of body of consciousness that's passed along to every new giraffe that's born. Yeah, I think we should read this quote. Okay. Uh, there's a great interview in Scientific American. Uh, I mean, who was it? Was it who was it interviewing him? I can't remember now. Was it Rose? No. I'm not sure. It was it was a contemporary who was uh, more you know traditional mainstream science, but mm-hmm. he again was like. This Sheldrake guy, he's got something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's got a quality. Right. So here's how Sheldrake himself answers the question of morphic resonance. Uh, morphic resonance is the influence of previous structures of activity on subsequent similar structures of activity organized by morphic fields. It enables memories to pass across both space and time mm-hmm. from the past. The greater the similarity, the greater the influence of, of morphic resonance. What this means is that all self-organizing systems like molecules, crystal cells, plants, animals, and animal societies have a collective memory on which each individual draws and to which it contributes. And here's the key here, I think. Mm -hmm. He says, in its most general sense, this hypothesis implies that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. Yeah, scientific establishment really particularly (laughs) doesn't like that last bit right there. Yeah, Sheldrake just... uh, Called out the laws, so-called laws of nature. (laughs) Right. So there's something in there that kind of stuck out to me that I was curious about. I couldn't find an answer to. Is that um, he says the greater the similarity, the greater the influence of morphic resonance. But what is the similarity, say, in like a giraffe embryo that allows the morphic resonance of all the giraffes that came before to be like this? This is the thing we need to exert our influence on. Like what similarity attracts that morphic resonance? I took that to mean maybe not in the case of giraffes, but in the case of, like, different varieties of an orchid, like the more similar, you know, because that's mm-hmm. why they're all different ones. I, I don't see. know. Maybe not. Yeah, but what is the initial similarity that that morphic field recognizes in that specific kind of orchid that says, oh, I'm going to influence you? Or know. is it just... We should call them. It just naturally happens. I don't know. But these are the questions that you start to wonder about when you read Sheldrake's stuff, which is, I think, the reason why I like him. Um, like he, it it just makes you think. You just start sure. to think differently than than just like, oh, it's it's DNA. Yeah, where are you with this guy overall? I am sympathetic to him because I admire that he has a tremendous amount of courage uh, and willingness to take tons of flack, and I'm sure in this day and age, lots of hate mm-hmm. and threats. Um, I think that. I am critical of the fact that he stopped publishing peer-reviewed papers all the way back in the mid-'80s. Yeah. That makes him currently less of a scientist and more a, a science communicator, but he's also kind of making up his own science, too, so I don't know if he qualifies as a science communicator. But I generally like him, and I appreciate the role that he um, he plays in this this uh, with science. What about you? I'm kind of with you there. Uh, I've, I admire his is chutzpah, mm-hmm. um, because I, I don't think that he is a charlatan out just to make money selling books like some people think. Yeah, I don't either. I think he's a really smart guy who gave, has given his whole life to deep, deep thought and research on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I read some of it, and I think, he may be onto something. I read other stuff, and I think, this sounds like magic. <laughs> right. Uh, and we are men of science. Yes. You know, we're, we are... <laughs> Podcasters, yeah, right. But we have always, you know, roundly sided with the scientific method as sort of the baseline. And if you can't, if you can't satisfy the scientific method, then uh, we typically kind of poo-poo it. But there's something again about the way he's gone about it that just doesn't seem like he's just some wacko out there making stuff up. Yeah, and I think he also kind of tunes into something that I dislike, which is you know he's really critical and really challenges you know hardened dogma of a lot of the scientific community where it's yeah. like, this is just how it is. Well, why? Yeah. Well, I don't know. But I was taught that, but that's just how it is. And stop questioning it. And I'm I really you. dislike that. And I, I like him that he challenges that as well. Yeah, there's a rigidity in science that uh, turns us both off, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so turned off right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but I'm, I'm not going there because... I'm in the mini crush mode, so right on, right on. Keep it, keep it, keep it in SYS came. All right, so let's let's look at a, co- a few examples of claims that he he makes about uh, things that he thinks morphic resonance might explain in nature. Uh, 
mm-hmm. um, specifically with animal behaviors. He says things like fish schooling, um, butterflies, monarchs flying thousands of miles to mm-hmm. to uh, the same place, uh, homing pigeons, um, termites in Africa that are blind that build you know a ten foot tall nest with ventilation structures. He said all this stuff, or more importantly, we'll look at this a little closer in a minute, mm-hmm. a dog and their owner and a dog anticipating their owner's return, even though it might vary on what time that happens. Right. Like the sense that the dog knows and is waiting by the door. He thinks that's all explained by morphic resonance. Yeah, and I mean, like, it, it's curious in that, you know, how does a... How does a bee know after it makes that wax ring in a honeycomb? How does it know to to melt it into um, a polygon shape rather than just right. a circle? Or like those termites? Like why does a termite nest look almost identical to other termite nests? DNA. You know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like there's there's a lot of behaviors that we can't quite explain. That if you do kind of buy into this morphic resonance idea, you could say, well, that's actually really really interesting. Now, and this is a real good criticism of morphic resonance, is you could also just as equally say magic or right. God or whatever. There's not, there, you, no one's proven that morphic resonance exists. This is just Sheldrake saying, here's a, good examples of what I'm talking about, this morphic resonance stuff. Yeah, and this is uh, kind of important too. He talks about the fact that humans are not as sensitive to this because and this is where he kind of got me a little bit uh, mm-hmm. thinking. He says, we're so distracted by technology, and we don't need collective memory of past humans to survive anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're not, that's why we can't really sense these fields. And I kind of disagree with that in some ways. Like, I think if if it does exist, it still is, it still survives in humans and, and things like, think about how, how um, easily a, the average human can pick a snake out of the grass. With with peripheral vision, right? I wasn't raised around snakes. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't drum it in my into my head to be really wary <laughs> of all snakes. And yet I'm a pro at picking a snake out in the grass with my peripheral Are vision. Are you really? Sure. <laughs> and it's been shown that, that people can, like, pick a gun out as quickly as they can pick out snakes and spiders. And we're really good at picking out snakes and spiders in our environment. Um, and I, I, that this would be a pretty good example of that, if you ask me. That is the most common descriptor, I think, when people say, what's Josh like? I'm always like, <laughs> he drinks a lot of beverages, coffee, water, you know, energy drinks. He uh, He's a hard worker. And man, you should see that guy pick a snake out of his peripheral vision. <laughs> it's, it's uncanny. It makes a gunshot ricochet sound. <laughs> like, I don't go for a walk in the woods without him anymore. <laughs> right. Sometimes you're nice and carry me on your back when I get tired. So (laughs) um, here's a couple of things with human morphic resonance that this is where it gets a little wacky to me. Mm -hmm. Um, He says, he claims that a crossword puzzle is easier to complete later in the day because of all the other people that had solved it earlier in the day. And they are broadcasting this morphic resonance out into the universe, I guess. Yeah. Just their general awareness of the answers. That gets a little wacky to me. Yeah, a little. The other one is not as wacky, um, is that feeling eyes in the back of your head, like you're being stared at. Mm -hmm. That's a thing. Uh, He says that's morphic fields. Yeah, that your morphic field extends beyond your head and that it's sensitive and is the first thing contacted by that person's stare, and it lets you know, basically, that you're being stared at. Yeah, this is where he just, he's going in the right direction, then I hear that, and I think, oh, boy, that is sounds a little wacky. I read another really good explanation for that, um, that it's a self-fulfilling thing where you, um, say you're in a library or whatever, and mm-hmm. you get the sense that you're being stared at by somebody at a table behind you, and when you start to turn around, the movement of your head catches they look that up. person's attention. Interesting. And when you look, when you finally complete that turn, that person is looking at you. That makes sense. Especially and, if you're like, ah, oh, for God's sake, and you turn around. <laughs> right, yeah. Then they're definitely going to look the next time you turn, too, because they're keeping an eye on you. That's right. Or they're just looking for snakes. So, Charles, um, as you kind of said earlier, this has not all been very well received by the scientific community. <laughs> to say the least. They tend to think of it as hokum, um, the fact that he doesn't 
publish peer-reviewed papers anymore mm-hmm. and instead writes books directly to the to the public. Um, the fact that uh, they claim that his stuff isn't falsifiable, but if you read his explanations and descriptions, he's like, no, actually, this all is falsifiable, and I try to run experiments all the time. Sometimes it comes back with positive results. Mm-hmm. Um, but they generally don't like the stuff that he's saying. And in particular, there was one guy who, uh, looking back, made Rupert Sheldrake's career. And his name was Sir John Maddox. <laughs> and at the time that... Um, uh, what was it? The science, the new science of life. Yeah, new science of life. When that book came out, uh, Sir John Maddox happened to be the editor of the journal Nature. Nature and Science are the two most prestigious scientific peer-reviewed publications in the entire world. He's knighted for God's sakes. And this guy, right, was the editor of that, and he got his hands on the science of a uh, new science of life, and wrote not just a book review, an editorial Mm -hmm. about this book from the editors of Nature claiming that it was an infuriating tract and that it was the best candidate for burning there has been for many years. Yeah, also this, in a 1994 interview, he said, Sheldrake is putting forward magic instead of science, Mm -hmm. and that can be condemned in exactly the language that the Pope used to condemn Galileo for the same reason, it is heresy. Right. So if you were curious about how Sir John Maddox felt about the dogma of science, the fact that he used the word heresy kind of says it all, right? And this was 13 years after that first and review. And invoked the Pope. <laughs> yeah, he was doubling down on this. And he didn't mention that it turned out Galileo was right, even though he positioned himself in science and the Pope position in this one. Burn. But the fact is... He used the word burning. He he and his defenders later on mm-hmm. will say like, no, he if you read the whole thing at the end, he says, no, we shouldn't be burning books, but he does say that there's hadn't been a better candidate for burning. <laughs> but if we were to burn books, this exactly. would be the first one on the pile. Right. And so that you know, from that point on, Rupert Sheldrake's publishers are like, we'll be using that on the dust jacket of every edition <laughs> yeah. of this from now on. And it made his career. He went from somebody who might have never been anybody, to the premier heretic of science, thanks to that dusty old crotch, Sir John Maddox. Yeah, here's <laughs> dusty old crotch. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of him. Oh, man. Or anybody who suggests <laughs> we should burn books. So here's another quote from another professor of biology at University College London, Lewis Wolpert. Uh, Morphic resonance is rubbish. It is unmitigated junk and a great insult to the people who do real work in the field. Yeah, and I'm sure we could spend the next 20 minutes finding quotes like that um, sure. about that book. Yeah, and and Sheldrake's response has always been, um, I mean, he'll go back at people for sure, but not in a sort of a poopy pants way. Right. Uh, he basically is like, and, and you know, in any idea that doesn't conform to this religion of science is denounced. Mm-hmm. And he said it's closed-minded. It's a closed-minded system. It goes against the nature of what science is, which should be discovery yeah. and investigating hypotheses uh, and the fact that they are valid until they are proven or disproven by experimenting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so get off my back with your dusty crotch. And in fact, um, some... <laughs> Some scientists in the field, or in a a number of fields, have kind of come to Sheldrake's defense. Not so much that they've criticized John Maddox. I get the impression that you don't don't (laughs) criticize Sir John, who was the editor of Nature. Unless you're Josh Clark. Right, yeah. Well, I'm not a scientist. I've got no skin in this game. But um, they came to Sheldrake's defense in that... Um, they said, "Okay, if you're saying these are falsifiable, let's let's do some experimentation. Let's take let's take this to the to the point you're you're putting it at, and let's let's apply the scientific method to this." Yeah, stuff. here, smoke this hash. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, Sheldrake said that to them. Like, okay, for the for the data to make sense, you got to smoke this first. That's right. <laughs> and they went, "Oh, okay." That <laughs> right now, <laughs> got it. But that's why everybody likes to hang out with him, because um, <laughs> he's got the good stuff. Right. All right, so should we talk about um, a little bit about what he claims and what he's tried to prove? 
Yeah, because so again, like he's he's run these experiments, but there have been. I just want to say there have been a few people who've come up and been like, you know, that was BS. What Sir John said, we shouldn't be burning books. I'm going to extend an olive branch on behalf of the scientific community, and and we're going to test some of these experiments. Yeah, so he drilled down on a few in a few different areas um, that we're going to talk about. One is the the one I talked about about humans being stared at. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is the dogs anticipating their owner's return. Right. Basically, human-dog telepathy. Right. Uh, And then, yeah, boy, as soon as that word telepathy is thrown out there, that's a science killer. Yeah, and that's a, I mean, that's a big, easy criticism of Sheldrake's ideas is that they they include telepathy, that the idea that we're tuned into this general body of conscious knowledge that that was accumulated by all the living things that came before us and that this exists outside of our minds and we can connect to it with our minds, that's telepathy. And yeah, There's no way to put it otherwise. Well, and Psy in general, which we should probably do a podcast on at some point. Sure. I mean, we've been chipping away at it little by little, but that's yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the third one that, I'm, that he kind of drilled down on was uh, the idea that, diff- that successive generations of lab rats can solve their little puzzles and problems faster and easier than generations before. That is because of morphic resonance. Yeah, and there's been data. He's either carried out experiments himself or he's, he's you know, pointed out to publish data before that have shown that. I think back in the 30s, there was a, a uh, I guess, a biologist or a psychologist who was training mat, or rats how to um, run a maze. And he found, to his amazement, that rats of successive generations over like 36 generations did better initially on these mazes than their predecessors, which would suggest, uh, well, a lot of things, but apparently controlled for genetics and environment and said, it's possible that this is, this is somehow being passed down from one generation to the next outside of genes. Yeah. So let's talk about the dog thing because we have dogs and we love to think that our dogs are little people and that they sit by the door waiting on us mm-hmm. and look out the window and are just sad until we get home. Sure. Uh, and so he did this experiment and then later on did some more experiments with a partner, um, which we'll talk about here in a sec. But he found a lady, a British woman who, uh, her name was Pam, and she had a dog named JT, J-A-Y-T-E-E. Very weird. And she said, hey, Use me because I got this dog who waits by the window uh, before I come home, no matter when I come home. Right. So it doesn't matter if I come home at 5 or 10 o'clock at night or 3 in the afternoon. This dog is by the window. So I think there's some telepathy going on. And Sheldrake said, well, step right up and let's see what's going on here. Yeah, and it wasn't just that her dog sits by the window the whole time she's gone. It's that... People had noticed that her dog dog would suddenly sit up, go to the window, and then within a few 10 minutes or something like that, Pam would come home. Right, and started singing True Colors by Cyndi Lauper. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And she would come home at different times of the day. Like, this is a pretty, it was a remarkable thing. So, um, apparently over 100 different tests, Sheldrake found that 84 out of 100 times, this dog accurately predicted when Pam was coming home. And Sheldrake's whole hypothesis... Within 11 seconds... We, well, people should understand, not that the this dog hears the car pull in. Within 11 right. seconds of her leaving to go home. Right, leaving her office, I think, right. you know, miles away. Exactly. And again, this is at different times of day. Um, they apparently experimented so that she would come home in different kinds of cars, including taxis, so that the dog couldn't somehow, like, hear this, this particular sure. hum of, the, of Pam's motor or something like that. Um, but he <laughs> yeah. controlled for a lot of stuff. And this is something you got to understand about Rupert Sheldrake. He carries out scientific experiments, like, as, uh, under the scientific sure. method. What people disagree with is his interpretation of the data typically but he controlled for all this different stuff and he found that 84 times out of 100 um, JT accurately predicted roughly when um, Pam was going to come home by getting up and going to the window to wait for her right yeah I think that first one though was not quite so scientific wasn't that the, the deal this is why they redid it no, no, they didn't redo it because it wasn't scientific. They redid it because one of his greatest critics, Richard Wiseman, who is a, um, a, a, a I can't think a psychologist, but also like a professional skeptic, um, 
said, this is BS, but let's, let's, let, let me carry out, let me replicate your experiment and see if uh, I get the same result. Oh, okay, because he had an Austrian uh, documentary crew, and they mm-hmm. said that the test wasn't scientific. Oh, I'm sorry, right. They, like, they're, they're filming what they did was not scientific, but he had already previously carried out this, in, in private that no one saw. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, the sure. scientists do that all the time. I don't think that he's... I don't think he has been accused of fudging his methodology. I think he's just roundly accused of cherry-picking data or misinterpreting the data or or interpreting the data to suit his needs, that kind of stuff. But I don't get the impression that a lot of people are like, this data on its at its core is hokum. All right. Well, Wiseman, like you said, noted skeptic, Mm -hmm. professional poo-pooer of things, experimental psychologist. He comes in and says, all right, let's do this together. He said, all right, this dog did not, uh, in four different occasions, or in four different experiments, this dog failed. Right. Uh, And this dog is going to the window a lot. He's a window (laughs) hanger-outer. Yeah, this dog loves that window. And so they said, all right, let's rule out some of these false positives. And let's say, uh, let's, let's define what the real signal would be. That's if this dog stays at the window for two minutes, not just pops up to see if it's raining mm-hmm. or to sing a stanza of true colors, but right. really sits there for two minutes. Um, and then let's see what happens. They did that, and Wiseman said, uh, all right, and we all got to also say it's got to be within 10 minutes of her leaving for, from home, not 11 minutes. Right. Shaved off one minute. <laughs> And in all four of these experiments, this dog gives a signal before that 10-minute period, before she even started for home. So Wiseman said, failed. So if you read Sheldrake's uh, rebuttal to Wiseman's findings, and Wiseman ran around not just saying failed. He, like, gave, I think, four different talks about this experiment and how, like, it it didn't amount to anything. Um, And so uh, Sheldrake responded to it, and he was like, well, this two-minute uh, duration was an arbitrary signal that you came up with that right. wasn't part of my original methodology. And then also, in I think all four of those experiments, or uh, maybe all four, um, so the dog went to the window early, and um, and then afterward, if he went to the window again, which apparently he did, to wait for Pam, that was thrown out because he'd already gone to the window before. He's like, well, I never said the dog only went to the window when Pam was coming home, I just said he would go to the window to wait for Pam, um, you know, within some certain time frame of her leaving. And apparently the dog continued to do this, but it wasn't included in these tests because he had already gone to the window. So you, it's really detailed and, and you can read it yourself if you want to, but um, he has a good explanation for why Wiseman's interpretation of the data was, you know, or his methodology was flawed. But it's all very civil like you were saying before. He's not like Wiseman's a moron who couldn't do science if it sat on him and and uh, caused him to stop respirating or anything like that. Yeah, and I think it's uh, the other thing he, because, you know, the thing that Wiseman poo-pooed was the fact that the dog started this behavior before she started for home. Right. And Sheldrake was like, hey, I think that further proves it actually because I think that Pam is sending signals before she starts for home that she doesn't even realize. Right. Like, Maybe she she gets her coat and goes to the restroom for a few minutes or something even. Well, she was with Wiseman. And that's the beginning of the going home process. Yeah, or she was with Wiseman's assistant, and Wiseman's assistant was the one who knew what time they were going home. So she, he said maybe Pam was picking up on the guy looking at his watch or something like sure. that and knew when she was going to go home anyway. Um, there's a lot of... He has a lot of explanations for it. It's very interesting to kind of read the back and forth. But um, so that so, but Wiseman won that one because uh, everyone wanted Wiseman to win that one, and and I think that's kind of par for the course for Sheldrake. He, he's like, well, no, here's all these other explanations for this interpretation, and people just kind of ignore it unless you want to believe what Sheldrake has to say. That's right. Um, if you don't want to believe what Sheldrake has to say, people like Wiseman and other skeptics provide, you know. Well, here, we carried out this experiment, and now this is disproven, right? Uh, another guy who did that is a really um, 
big critic of Sheldrake. His name is Stephen Rose. I think he's a, uh, bi- no, I'm sorry. He's, uh, yeah, he's a biologist and a neuroscientist, Stephen Rose. And um, he carried out another experiment about how chicks might be able to learn, kind of like that lab rat experiment, how they successive generations learned um, how to do a maze. Mm-hmm. Well, they did this with chicks, and they did this experiment together, and they had different interpretations of the data, and it went back and forth in, in different journals or whatever. But the fact is there are scientists out there, skeptics who are critics of Sheldrake and his ideas and methods, but um, still scientists that are willing to engage his ideas. And I think that that's healthy, even if they are coming at it from, you know, the standpoint like, this is bunk, this is hokum, they're still willing to, to go through with these experiments. And I, I, I respect that. That's right. Uh, you want to take another break? Yes. All right, Chuck. Uh, we're going to take another break, everybody, in case you didn't hear. <laughs> All right, so Rose, uh, Stephen Rose, and this this quote kind of really puts the nail on the head of the critics of Sheldrake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this actually is one that spoke to me uh, because it's not a, it's not an attack on on Sheldrake. It's more of a sympathetic view, which is this: Sheldrake is so committed to his hypotheses that it is very hard to envisage the circumstances in which he would accept its disconfirmation. So right. it's a very sweet way of saying, like, this guy really, really believes this stuff mm-hmm. so much that, like, I don't think he is able to look at the data in a in a sort of level-headed, unbiased way. Right. So and that's says tough, it all. I mean, that's tough to... to it, 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 it's a very cutting criticism because how do you... How do you show that's not true? Other well, yeah. than to say, so well, say, no, uh, uh-huh. these are wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to admit that your hypothesis is wrong um, to to get away, to get around that. And then once you've done that, you've just lost anyway. So it's a, it's a tough, very, it's a very shrewd criticism. Yeah. So Sheldrake over the years has, um, he's written a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has been accused of... Um, He's been accused by some of, like, hey, this guy's just out there writing books to make money uh, and has sort of made himself the the superstar of the alt side of science. That seems to be the biggest explanation for what he's why he's doing what he's doing, that yeah. he found it easier an easier and quicker path to fame and recognition and probably money writing these books about this, his own made-up ideas rather than writing, you know, academic papers like everybody else. Right. And on Sheldrake's side, he's like, listen, this, uh, what he calls the default worldview of science and these dogmas, um, he said they should be sort of pushed back against. Mm-hmm. And um, what or about... questioned. Yeah, questioned. What about the Big Bang? He's like, everyone, you know, thinks they have it all figured out and all laws in the universe are constant. Well, except for the Big Bang. And then, you know, we can't fully explain that. And that there's another uh, great quote from a uh, a philosopher <laughs> named Terrence McKenna. I love this quote. Is give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to things like the Big Bang, that kind of holds true. Yeah, specifically with the Big Bang, I think is what he's talking about, that if you can just allow for there one to piece have of been magic <laughs> nothing nothing that came before and all of a sudden all the matter and energy in the universe um, suddenly existed then we can pretty much explain all other physics from that point on or we can use that and um, and that's the it, big question is what happened right before the big bang yeah, yeah, exactly. But we also have other questions about the universe, like is it inflating? Sure. Is it, you know, is there going to be a big bang or is there going to be a big crunch? Or um, th- th- We have a lot of questions and a lot of misunderstanding about it too, but we physics needs the big bang to have happened the way that we think it might have happened. But even still, the way we think it might have happened doesn't follow the physical laws as we understand them. And so Sheldrake and others point to that one and they're like, come on, guys, like, 
This is uh, just one of several examples of science just saying this is the way it is, even though we don't fully understand it or the data we're getting suggests otherwise. Right. And, oh, man, how can I say this in a way that's not, like, controversial? <laughs> it, there isn't one. It's not the same as when, let's say, a uh, a creationist saying, well, you can't really explain the Big Bang, so... um. It, it's all magic, and that's okay. <laughs> right, right. You know, I think it's what, not it's not along those same lines. There's something different about what Sheldrake is saying. I think what he's saying is, yeah, in some cases he's like, we don't understand this, so here's my interpretation. I think in his more recent um, book, The Science Delusion, which came out in 2012 in the U.S. is called Science Set Free, mm-hmm. um, he's saying here are some some essential dogmatic beliefs of science that are worth challenging and that if we don't challenge them, we we might end up going down this wrong path of scientific inquiry um, and we need to be a little more free to differing ideas yeah. because we don't understand these things like everybody generally believes we do. Yeah, I think he kind of, and the book title itself, you said in America, Science Set Free, mm-hmm. that kind of encapsulates, I think he sees himself as as some kind of emancipator mm-hmm. of science rather than um, a, a kook who believes in telepathy. Right. Even though so, he kind of, I mean, that stuff, and uh, Dave Roos helped us with this uh, with this research. Yeah, he did a great job. He did, and, you know, he points out, and he's right, morphic resonance sounds very strange and weird. Yeah. You know, and it also sounds like something that would sell a book. Right, right. But to right. throw him in there, uh, I think it's uh, Rose said he's basically no no better than someone who endorses crop circles and creationism. Right. And that is pseudoscience. Yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily fair. No, and even so, if you take away things like morphic resonance and things like um, uh, well, morphic resonance, basically, yeah. <laughs> um, if you if you take that stuff away and just look at him as like. Uh, a challenger to scientific dogma, you can appreciate him on the, on that level mm-hmm. as well. Like he he, you can peel back different layers of this guy and appreciate different parts, and also disagree with different parts. But so in his most recent one, the Science Solution, he basically says here are some things that science believes that we shouldn't necessarily believe, like that matter is unconscious, mm-hmm. and there are people out there, including physicists, who are like, you know, if consciousness were just a a property of all matter and that the more matter you put together, the more sophisticated consciousness you got. That would explain a lot of stuff, including human consciousness. That's just an emergent property of all these particles that came together to form human beings. Um, But currently, scientific establishment says, no, matter's unconscious. That's just our understanding of it. That's the way it is. Yeah. Uh, although that is being challenged by more people than just Rupert Sheldrake. And then there was another one. He gave a TED Talk, a TEDx Whitechapel talk. That I think they, was later banned, right? Or not well, banned, but removed. They, they took it from their YouTube channel and then inserted it into a blog post. You can still see it, but right. they put it in a blog post because their science advisors have been like, uh, this is pretty heretical and right. I don't think you should just be presenting it like it's just... You need to couch it in some language. So they did, and they put it in a blog post. But you can still see it. It's not like they just took it down altogether. But um, it's a really interesting talk. It's only like 20 minutes long. But in it, he makes a really good case about how the laws of nature, like the gravitational constant or the speed of light, aren't actually constant. And physics needs those things to be constant for it to do its inquiries, for it to do its formulae and equations for the current theories to work. And he's saying, no, there's been periods in history where we've measured these things and gotten different different measurements. And that during that same period, all these different um, scientists around the world were getting roughly the same different measurements from what we thought it was before. Right. How do you explain that? And he, I think that point is really important because if something like the speed of light does change and understanding that it does and how it does could give us an even greater understanding of physics. And that 
right there, I think, is the greatest role that Rupert Sheldrake plays, is to say, no, stop looking at it through this lens. This lens is possibly incorrect, at the very least. Don't burn all your old stuff. Don't throw it away. But just step to the side and approach it from a different way just to see if that's the truth. And if it is the truth, then we'll have a greater understanding of how things actually work. Yeah, because the unexplainable are only unexplainable until they can be explained. You're right. You know? And well done, Chuck. And at various points throughout history, there there were a lot of claims that things were unexplainable until they figured it out. Yep. And again, we're not touting pseudoscience here because we have a pretty good track record of uh, roundly siding on the side of science. Yes. But, uh, and expertise, too. Like, yeah. we both have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for expertise. Sure. And, you know, people who go study things for years and years and years and apply themselves to that understanding that one thing, that's an expert, and they should generally be listened to. That's right. And Sheldrake has proven himself out enough to be listened to, I think. He's not uh, Aliens Man, <laughs> right. whoever that guy was. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, make up your own mind. Go read about him. Uh, go read both sides about him if, you, if you're if you interested in this. Don't just listen to us. Like, he's definitely one of those people you should make your own mind up. And if you disagree, great. If you agree, fantastic. We're just kind of, we just kind of admire thinkers like that. That's right. Uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, that was it. If you want to know more about him, go read uh, I go go read his books. Go do what you want. Um, and in the meantime, since I say go do what you want, it's time for listener mail. Yeah, this one is a little long, but this was a firsthand account from the Iowa caucus. Oh. So I thought it bared uh, reading. Uh, this is from Lauren, a student at University of Iowa, mm-hmm. participated in her first Iowa caucus. Uh, she said, and "I went be- last." <laughs> <laughs> well, she did say that. Uh, I went because it's such a big deal here, and since I'm graduating, I thought it might be my only chance. Uh, However, this week's events, it's looking like it may be the last time anyone is going to participate. Uh, There were several logistical issues, in my opinion, that led to issues uh, where I was participating. Uh, My caucus location was downtown Iowa City at the Englert Englert Theater. Uh, My roommate and I arrived about 45 minutes before uh, to make sure we could be in the door before 7, since we had been told if you weren't in the door, then uh, TS for you. Two lines for the caucus wrapped around the block, one for people who registered in the correct precinct and one for people who needed to change their registration to the correct precinct. There were over 700 people in our caucus location alone, far more than they, uh, the Democratic Party of Iowa had expected. Uh, since my caucus location was a theater, it was almost impossible to distinguish where different candidates were in the room. Uh, the Bernie and Warren groups were so large they had locations on the floor and had to have satellite spots in the balcony. When it came time to do the headcount, the overcrowded space led to issues tallying people. Uh, All of the campaign volunteers had reported numbers. Caucus delegate informed us that the total number of people under each candidate was about 50 under the amount of total people checked in. So they assumed that 50 people had chosen to leave before the votes were all tallied, but the campaign volunteers demanded a recount. Uh, All in all, it took about two and a half hours to get through the first round of caucusing to find out which candidates would be viable. Uh, my prediction is that because Iowans are so passionate about their caucus system, they'll probably happen again next election cycle. But since their faux importance is brought to public consciousness this year, they'll eventually die away to a primary system soon. Huh. That is from Lauren Cheshire. Lauren, that was a great account. You're basically like the um, Hunter Thompson correspondent <laughs> of right. Stuff You Should Know. And we appreciate that big time. That's right. She uh, the took Iowa some caucus. amyl nitrates after that. and Right. <laughs> The name of the, the subject line of the email was the Iowa caucus is depraved and decadent. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us to let us know something that's going on in your neck of the woods, well, we want to hear about it. You can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com. Don't know why you would want to these days. Instead, just send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.